great. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in many places this morning. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Just keep your place mark there, or finger there. On that as we begin this morning. The title of today's sermon is Encourage One Another. Encourage One Another. That is the title. It is the main theme of this morning's message. And this is really forms part two of our little mini-series that we're having here on biblical fellowship. And that will be the topic as well this morning as we discuss biblical fellowship and encouraging one another. Well, encouragement. We all need it, don't we? A little bit, a lot. Anyone need encouragement this morning? I know I need encouragement. And you know what? I need it a lot more than I often dare to admit. But let's face it. We're not going to receive a lot of encouragement in the world around us. Not the type of encouragement that we're going to be speaking about this morning. For the encouragement that we are speaking about this morning, oh, it has power. It has immense power. I can be down in the dumps. I can be having my little pity party. I can be indulging my sin. I can be singing, woe is me. You know that tune, right? Woe is me. And then, and then, just a timely word from a friend. A conversation. A commendation. And it can just lift me up. It can, like, reroute my thinking. And it can put a new tune in my heart. Have you ever received the power of encouragement? Have you given it as well? I know that I receive it often, repeatedly, especially on Thursday mornings. That's when we meet as a pastoral leadership team on Thursday mornings. And, well, honestly, I, I am so often genuinely encouraged by our Sunday service so encouraged. But you know what? By Thursday, I got burdens. I have concerns that are weighing upon me. I have questions, and I have more questions than I do answers. There's concerns for my family. I got concerns for me personally, for the church, bearing the burdens that you all may have. But an amazing thing happens often on Thursdays. It's not like all the questions are answered or all the issues are resolved by 3 o'clock or 5 o'clock by the time we end our leadership meeting. But you know what? So often I leave that meeting resolved to trust in Christ and resolved to follow him. Why? Because of the encouragement of my friends, by the encouragement of Al Pino, Bentley Crawford, and now Jim Britt as well. It's the ministry of of encouragement. And you know the coolest, most amazing thing about this ministry? It's for all of us. It's for all of us to give, and it's for all of us to receive as well. And it's all over Scripture. And this morning, I'm praying that God would open our eyes to see this ministry of encouragement in Scripture. It's there, but so often we can miss it until our eyes are drawn to it. So my aim this morning is to draw our eyes afresh to this theme 
of encouragement, that we may see it, oh, that we may live it out as a church as well. But here's a little tip as we begin this message. Just don't look for the word encourage in the Bible. For the word most often behind the verb that is translated encourage in our English Bibles has quite a few meanings, several meanings in fact. It has what we call a large semantic range. And behind all these different words is typically one word in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament. It's parakaleo. Parakaleo. We're going to talk about that word. You don't need to know that word. You don't need to know Greek. But you do need to know this. That one word is found 109 times in the New Testament. 109 times in the New Testament. And I had the opportunity, as I was preparing this sermon, to go through almost every reference this week. This word is most often translated as encourage. It could be translated as exhort, comfort, appeal, urge, or implore. And all these translations, all these words, all these constellation of words are the action words of biblical fellowship. And that's our theme in this mini-series, biblical fellowship. These are the action words, the very core of biblical fellowship. They show us what our mission as a church to connect to one another, to connect people to one another through Jesus Christ looks like. What it looks like, what it smells like, and what it tastes like. To give you an illustration, when I was in the Dominican Republic several weeks ago, I was introduced to a local dish or stew called sancocho. I love that word, sancocho, okay? I believe it's ajiaco for Cubans, okay? It's a farmer's stew. I had it more than once during our week there. In fact, the very first evening we arrived, Al had some, and he was like salivating. It was almost embarrassing. He was just like ooing and aahing over this stew. Cindy liked it so much that she got the recipe from our host and came back home and made it the following week. I still can't tell you all the ingredients that are in Sancocho, okay? But I can tell you this. I was pulling out corn. I was pulling out yucca. I was pulling out green plantains. I was pulling out malanga, whatever that is. I was pulling out goat meat. I was pulling out Dominican sausage. I was pulling out chicken and pork. I felt like I was a magician pulling out a rabbit out of a magician's hat. I mean, like, how did that come from there? How do you do that? Not only that, as I was eating this soup, pulling out all this stuff, the bones included, my host was passing me rice and more rice and then wedges of avocado. It was amazing. I don't know how it all worked, okay? But that was just lunch, okay? Now, if you've ever had or made or tasted sancocho, you would know that different people do use slightly different ingredients. But the net result of all these ingredients simmering for hours in local spices is a taste that is unmistakable. It is delicious. And here's the point. It leaves you wanting more. And so should biblical fellowship 
and friendship. It should leave you wanting more. Oh, biblical fellowship in this ministry of encouragement may have a variety of different expressions, all right? And a variety of different ways in which it is expressed. But the net result, oh, it's the same. Encouragement, hope, grace. Church, may our taste buds this morning be wet for the ministry of encouragement. And may we be left wanting and longing for more. With that in mind, let's pray. Oh, Lord, you love to encourage us. How do we know? Because you have given us your very thoughts, your very words. Oh, but not just that. You've given us your very Holy Spirit who dwells within. And you've given us each other. Lord, I believe you want to encourage us this morning. And Lord, we are eager to be encouraged by your word, through your spirit, and gathering with one another this morning. So Lord, would you do your work? Would you encourage us that we may in turn encourage others and experience true, genuine, biblical fellowship as a church, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, instead of working through just one primary scripture or text this morning, I want to help open your eyes to this ministry of encouragement that I've referred to. This ministry that has been tasked to the church, to us, by looking at a variety and really a sampling of scriptures this morning. And I want you to see three basic things, three points that form the basis of this sermon. Number one, that encouragement is the ministry of every Christian. Number two, encouragement is a necessity for every Christian. And thirdly, encouragement is rooted in the comfort of the gospel. Let's start with point one. Encouragement is the ministry of every Christian. To encourage or to exhort is a command for every Christian. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes this clear. For those who traveled with us through the book of Hebrews as a church, you may remember that Hebrews is a sermon. And the pastor giving this sermon is undoubtedly giving plenty of encouraging words. He's also exhorting, also at times warning. But I want you to note this. The author, pastor of Hebrews, doesn't assume that this task of exhorting or encouraging belongs to him alone. We read in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, which I reference, which will also be in the PowerPoint here, these words. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now let's travel a few more chapters in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews 10. Also on the slide, PowerPoint. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch those two words in our two passages? Exhort, and in Hebrews 10, encouraging. Different words in English, but the same root word in Greek lies behind them both. Parakaleo. And they both function as a command, as an imperative. A command that extends beyond just the leadership of the church. You see, we as leaders here at Palm Vista, Al, Jim, Bentley, and myself, we want to encourage you. We want to be your biggest encouragers in many ways. But we also realize this. We can't always do that. Why? Because we're limited. Because we're finite. We cannot encourage each and every one of you, at least specifically, the way that we'd want to. But you know what? It's all by God's design. Did you catch the speech in here? Please note the verbiage. One another. Exhort one another. As you may recall from the sermon we gave several weeks ago on love one another, as well as what Al referenced last week. And this language, one another language, speaks of obligation. It speaks of relationship that we have as Christians, as a church. When we were saved to Jesus, we weren't just saved to him. We were saved to his body as well. When we were converted to Jesus, we were also converted to his very family. And with those, that family relationship, there are familial obligations as well that we have. And it's found right here in Hebrews. Exhort or encourage one another. We're going to talk about what this means in a few moments. But I want to start here because I don't want anyone here any Christian here to excuse themselves from this imperative to encourage one another. You may not be very good at encouragement, or at least encouraging or exhorting in love. In fact, you may stink at it. It may not be your gift. And by the way, there is a spiritual gift of exhortation. It's in Romans 12. Don't go there. You jot it down, Romans 12, 6 and 8. But you say, you know what, Corey, That's, this is not my thing. I'm just not very good at encouraging others. I've tried it. Well, you know what? I get it. I really get it. Neither do I. In fact, how many times have I sought to encourage my wife, especially in the early years of our marriage, only to have the very opposite effect? It would be comical if it weren't so sad. I remember the first full day of our honeymoon. I've shared this story with some of you. I thought I had a great idea. I thought I'd, you know, start off right, marrying, sending a little devotional, a meditation on the law of God. Well, there's nothing wrong with the content. It was just really, really poor timing on my part. It was not wisdom, giving Cindy's fears of a spiritually domineering husband. Let me just say this. After we were done with the little devotional, Cindy, she wasn't wanting more. She was not longing for more, and neither was I. I'm not sure what was happening, but it wasn't biblical fellowship, okay? That I am certain of. This may be only a slight exaggeration. I don't think we spoke more than five words to one another the 
rest of the day on this beautiful beach in the Cayman Islands, and we're just silent. We're just silent. Oh, friends, it's 18 years later. I've made progress by the grace of God, but I am still learning how to spiritually encourage my wife. But here, church, is what we must all remember. Encouragement, exhortation, is not just a gift. It's the calling of every husband, of every wife, of every single person here. And God will give us the grace to do that which he has called us to do. And this calling, it's a regular calling. In fact, it is a daily calling. Let's go back again to Hebrews 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Every day, exhortation and encouragement is to be a regular feature of our ministry and of our speech. And in these verses, you can almost hear, can't you, the clock ticking, so to speak. Encourage one another today, for today will soon be gone forever, and we dare not presume that there will be a tomorrow. For we live in what the New Testament writers called the last days, right? The last days prior to Christ's return and judgment. And the preacher of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, which we already read. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, day, capital D, the day drawing near, the day of Christ's return. Friends, we are never called to encourage someone tomorrow. We're called to do it today. While we have breath, while our hearts may be soft and a resolve to fight strengthened. And that leads to point two. Encouragement is a necessity. It's a necessity for every single Christian. Why? Let's go back again to Hebrews 3. Because there exists a very serious threat to your soul and to my soul. We read in Hebrews 3 again. Take care, brothers. Here we go. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Moving on. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a sober warning, isn't it? And with it, an admonition to take care, to watch your heart, given the destructiveness of unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin. In each of us, our faith is being tested daily. Daily. How? By our own indwelling sin, right? Called the flesh, and by the enemy of our soul, Satan. That's why we're to exhort one another daily. In other words, we are in a war daily. Sometimes it's a little skirmish with sin and unbelief. Some days it's just full-out warfare, isn't it? Oh, full-out warfare. But the war never ceases. 
here on earth. There is no peacetime until Christ returns. The enemy of our soul never takes a vacation, and neither should we when it comes to exhorting and encouraging one another. In a number of places in Scripture, the Apostle Paul uses this, you know, warfare metaphor and mentality. We recently went through the book of Ephesians, right? Many of you be aware of Ephesians 6, of this famous passage on spiritual warfare. But are you also aware of a passage, it's found in 1 Thessalonians, and I want to you don't have to turn there. We're going to have it up on the screen for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. I want to read it, and I want you to notice how this passage ends, starting with verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now here, moving on to verse 11. Therefore, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Can you catch the battle imagery there? We're to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation given to us who are in Christ Jesus. We're to put on faith. Why? Because we're tempted daily to give in to unbelief. To put on the breastplate of love. Why? Because our love can grow cold. And to put on the helmet of hope. Because we are so often tempted to become hope, hopeless in the battle in which we are facing. This great triad of faith, hope, and love. You ever heard of that? 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. This triad is continually at risk as we fight the battle that wages for our souls. That's why we're told in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5 to keep encouraging one another, same root Greek word, and build one another up. Why? Because left to ourselves, we grow weary. We grow weary in the battle. We need others to remind us of who God is and to help us put on the spiritual armor which he has provided for us in Christ. Last month, we as pastors attended our annual Sovereign Grace Leadership Conference for our family of churches. And the dean of our Sovereign Grace Pastors College, his name is Jeff Perswell, he gave a message on the opening night. And he described for us weariness. Weariness. He said this. Weariness is a persistent fatigue of the soul that has lost sight of a better future. It generates questions, softens convictions, and weakens resolve. In other words, it denigrates faith, hope, and love. He went on to say that such weariness is not remedied by sleep. If you've experienced or if you are experiencing this weariness, you can sleep 10 and 12 hours and you feel no more refreshed in the morning. It is not remedied by vacations. You may go away for a week and come back and you're just as burdened as when you left. 
It's not remedied by diversions, by movies, by sports, whatever it may be. You may engage in all those things, and you still feel weary at the end of the day. Can you relate? How is such weariness remedied? I think we see an answer, and it's demonstrated as well in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Actually, Al this morning read this chapter of comfort. He read the first few verses of Isaiah 40. We're going to travel down now to verse 27 through 31. We're going to have it up so you can just look at the screen here. It's a word of exhortation, and it's a word of encouragement. We start off with these sobering words found in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, Israel is essentially saying, God is unaware of me. Have you been there? Maybe you're there right now. Well, here's the thing. Israel knew better. The question, where is God? They're faithful to Yahweh, covenant God. They knew better. But you know what? Maybe you're saying the same thing this morning. You know what else? You know better as well, at least theologically. But you struggle to believe that God knows of your estate, or if he knows that he is not only able, but willing to address you in your weariness, in your suffering, in your affliction, in your doubt. You see, so much of this ministry of encouragement is reminding one another of what we already know about God, about himself, about his character, and about his grace. We often just need to hear it again, don't we? We need to hear it again and again. We need to hear it with clarity. We need to hear it with conviction. We need to be jolted by grace and truth. Listen to Isaiah's unequivocal response. It's really the Lord's response through the prophet Isaiah to the despondent heart of verse 27. These are God's very words to his people, starting at verse 28 now and following through the end of the chapter. Here's his response. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, this is God who we're talking about. Israel, this is God, your God, Yahweh, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Look at verse 29 and following. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Oh, you want to understand the ministry of encouragement, church? You got it right here, Isaiah 40. And this passage in Isaiah is so instructive for us. But it's instructive not only for what God says to his weary people by way of exhortation and encouragement, but also by what he does not say as well. 
You see, God answers his people's weariness with this. He says, Israel, this is what you need to know. You need to know who. You need to be reminded who I am. Secondly, you need to be remembered what? What I do and have come to do. Verse 29, to give power to the faint. And thirdly, he says, wait. No, Israel, wait. Just wait for my promise of provision, for my strength. Remember who I am, what I've done and am doing, and wait for the promise of provision, of strength and grace is coming for you. In other words, God exhorts and encourages his people and their weariness. But he does it by not explaining to them all the reasons contributing to their weariness or the why. Regarding this passage, Jeff Perswell made a simple statement that even a month plus later, it's still reverberating in my mind. It's this. As Christians, we don't live by explanations. We live by promises. We don't live by explanations. We live by promises. What we so often want when we're going through trials of various times, you know what we want? We want explanations, don't we? How could this happen? Why is this happening? What does this all mean? But maybe you've noticed, God seldom, if ever, feels compelled to give explanations to every situation and trial that we face. But you know what? He gives us something better. He gives us himself, who he is, what he's done, and what he has promised to do. This is the type of encouragement that we need in our despondency, in our trials, in our fight against sin and our adversary. But ironically, what we too often want is immediate answers, don't we? We want explanations. And ironically, what can happen is we as the encouragers, as the exhorters, we feel compelled to give an answer, to give an explanation. It's what Job's comforters did, Job's friends, remember them? In the book by his name, the book of Job, his friends, oh, they felt compelled. They were all too eager to tell Job why he was suffering, and that's the way out. In all his friends' zeal and scripture of knowledge, they forgot this one truth that we read in Isaiah 40, verse 28. It's this. His, that is God's, understanding is unsearchable. Perhaps your encouragement has often been derailed as you've attempted to explain that which you do not know. Your attempts to encourage others have been undermined by your attempt to give an interpretation or an explanation that you have no authority to give. Why? Because you're not God, and neither am I. Perhaps you just stop trying to give encouragement to friends in their suffering or weakness because you felt like you needed to give some type of explanation to what they're going through, and you haven't known what to say. Friends, what we need to give is the encouragement 
which we need most ourselves. It's God. It's his word. And it's the promise of provision as seen in Isaiah 40. It's so easy to lose perspective in what is often called the fog of war in this battle that we face. We feel like we're losing the battle against our own sin, let alone the manifestation of sins in our culture and society. And we begin to feel like Israel, that God is distant, that God is uncaring, that God is impotent, powerless. And we need someone at those moments to come alongside us, to call us to truth and to grace, God's truth and grace. You see this root word, parakaleo, means to call. Kaleo means to call. It means to call in or to call from besides. Let me give you an illustration of this. This past summer, our family camped in Denali National Park in the great state of Alaska. This park is named Denali. It's the Indian name for Mount McKinley. Mount McKinley is the tallest peak in North America that stands over 20,000 feet. In fact, it's the tallest peak in the world above sea level from base to peak. It is a large mountain. And although Mount McKinley's peak towers above the rest in the range, it's actually quite hard to see. Why? Because it's shrouded in clouds and fog most of the time. Well, during our visit there, we had a very difficult time spotting or seeing Mount McKinley, even though it was not far off, far off from us. The park rangers assured it was there. They told us where to stand, where to look, and what to look for. But you know what? It was to no avail. Then the last day, with my kiddos, we'd finished a hike, and we're just walking back to the campground. And there's this couple. I had never seen them in my life, didn't know who they were. They stopped us dead in their, our tracks. It's like, hey, turn around. Look, look, Mount McKinley. And the guy came up right next to me, didn't know who he was, and gave me a pair of binoculars. And for that moment, the fog lifted, and I could see Mount McKinley. Mount McKinley could be seen in all her majestic glory. To be an encourager is to call out to one another, sometimes in the fog, like this couple did for me, and to say, come, come close, come here, come here, look, and to hold out the binoculars of God's word and grace to them, that they too can see what you have seen. To see who God is, who he has revealed himself to be in all his glory and grace. To look at his power and his provision for all those who trust in him. But here's the reality. You can't say, look, if you've never seen Mount McKinley. If you've never beheld its glory or seen its contours. If you want to see Mount McKinley in all its glory. The sun better be shining, all right? Only then will you get a clear view of Mount McKinley. Only then will you be able to point others to this majestic mountain. In the same way, 
If you want to see God in all his glory, Jesus, the sun, better be shining. Only then will you get a clear view of who God is, what he has done, and what he's promised to do in Christ. Only then will you be able to point out God's glory to others. If you're here and you want to be encouraged, if you're here and you want to grow as an encourager, there's no better place to look for the glory of God than in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you. Don't need to turn. I just want you to hear it with your ears. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? Here it is. In the face of Jesus Christ. When that light shines in our hearts and we beheld, we behold Christ, only then and only then are we positioned to then encourage others and appoint them to our God. The crosshairs of God's glory are centered upon the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ died for the sins of those who have placed their saving trust in him, in him who rose to new life, that we may follow in his footsteps. It's at the cross where we find forgiveness, grace, and hope in our battle against sin and the ramifications of that sin. It's at the cross of Christ where we find hope that one day we too will rise to new life and walk in glory. One day we will be like him as he is. It's this good news, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, what we call the gospel, where we find comfort and by which we can comfort others as well. In fact, this Greek word that I've been referencing throughout the sermon is often translated as comfort. Only when we have been comforted by the good news of Jesus Christ will we be able to offer comfort and encouragement to others. And that leads to the final point, number three. Encouragement is rooted in the comfort of the gospel. In the Apostle Paul's opening of his letter to the church in Corinth, the second letter, we read these remarkable words. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see the logic there? The God of all comfort, our Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, comforts us. Why? That we might be able to comfort others with the comfort we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you say, but I'm no good at encouraging others. 
I never know what to say. I go black. I get tongue-tied. Listen, have you ever been comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ? If so, you can comfort others. You are qualified. You're not qualified. You are a prime candidate to encourage others. Maybe you battle depression. More days are still dark than light. But you have experienced God's grace and hope at times. Oftentimes, Mount McKinley, so to speak, is shrouded in clouds and in fog. But there have been those binocular moments where you have perceived God's glory, His grace, and His light. Maybe, you, maybe you're here and you battle addictions. By God's grace, you have fought and you are fighting. And you have experienced a measure of victory. You still fall down, but by God's grace, you get up. Maybe you've experienced unspeakable horror or tragedy in your life. And the memories still haunt you. By God's grace, you've seen God redeem some, but not all, of that which is intended for evil. But you still hurt. The memories are still there. If this is you, please don't waste your suffering. Please don't waste your suffering. With whatever grace you have received and been comforted by, use it. Use it to comfort others. See, I, I said earlier, if you have been comforted by the gospel, you are a prime candidate to give comfort. Let me just rephrase that or tweak it a little bit. If you've been comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are the only true candidate to encourage others. You see, encouragement is as much about receiving comfort as it is about giving comfort. If you have not been comforted by the gospel and you attempt to give comfort, your words will most likely sound trite, like empty platitudes. Most often, will most likely fall on deaf ears. You see, what we're encouraging people with is not just scriptural truth and doctrinal statements, as important as those are. What we are comforting people with is the comfort and the grace with which we have received. And when we do that, there's a gravity, there's a compassion to the truth we speak. When we have encountered the convicting and the comforting work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that work humbles us. It softens us. It tenderizes us. It positions us, positions us to comfort others as we have been comforted. It's amazing to me 
that the Apostle Paul spoke these words of comfort that I read to the church in Corinth. In fact, he ended his letter with these words in 2 Corinthians 3.11. Just hear them. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. If you read or have read all of Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians, you might have expected something a little different than those words. I might expect, finally, brothers, repent, aim for restoration, reprove, and correct one another. Certainly, Paul does correct and reprove this dysfunctional church in Corinth. But notice how he begins and ends his letter. Comfort one another with the comfort, i.e. the grace which you have received. I think we as a church, over the years, have emphasized the need to look at our own hearts and to be suspicious of our own motives. And I think we've done a fairly good job at detecting sin within and helping others do the same. But have we done an even better job of encouraging and exhorting one another with the grace of the gospel, of coming alongside someone and holding out the binoculars of God's word and God's grace. Of seeing not only what that person is in their sin, but seeing who they are becoming in Christ. Of commending the grace and work of God that we see in one another, which God is doing as he conforms you and me into his very glorious image. Church, that is what it means to encourage one another. Sometimes it does mean to exhort, to call one another to repentance and to righteous living. Sometimes it means to encourage one another in the forgiveness that we have at Calvary, that all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, that we have been cleansed as white as snow. Sometimes that exhortation or encouragement means bring before our friends the sure future grace that God promises for us. That grace for today, this moment, that grace that will be there tomorrow, and the grace we trust will be there this week. The promise of God's future grace for all those in Christ Jesus, for whatever the trials and whatever the temptations we will surely face. Whatever the ingredients of this encouragement the net result is the same. Faith, hope, love, encouragement. And like that, Sancocho, it'll leave you wanting more. Church, let us encourage one another. Let's pray quietly as I invite the worship team to come back up for a final song. Well, dear Lord, I do believe that the tenor of this message and your intent 
this morning is to encourage us. To encourage us with the truth of the gospel, which we can so quickly forget in our weakness and in our trials. So Lord, encourage us. Encourage us now as we apply what we have learned, as we sing this final song. May these be words of affirmation, words of who you are, of what you have done in Christ Jesus, and what you promise to do for all those who are in your name. So Lord, encourage us that we may be encouragement to others, that we as a church may know the sweet song, the sweet aroma of biblical fellowship that you call us to as your people. Amen.